Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Neuro Experience Podcast. Today's episode is an emotional one, and one that is very dear to my heart. One of the most pressing issues facing football is head injuries. TBIs and head injuries may be viewed simply as part and parcel of the game, but perceptions are changing. Research has long been telling us about the dangers of head injuries in football, particularly the link with neurological illnesses, and we all know this. However, the response from the sports governing bodies has so far been very negligible. In my opinion, what they're basically saying is that we need to accept that there's risks of dementia and death, and there's nothing we're going to do about it. Many of the players and many families and loved ones of players are deeply concerned that their loved ones will be put in a home at age 50. So in today's episode, let's take a look at the research and examine exactly what football needs to change to save more lives. We are joined by one of the first board-certified sports neurologists in the country, Dr. Stephanie Alessi LaRossa, MD. She's a sports neurologist with the Hartford Healthcare AIR Neuroscience Institute. For any coach or trainer or athlete, if you want to tune in and take notes, I, I strongly suggest you do. Because this episode not only lays the foundation to understanding the necessity of a sports neurologist, but it also introduces the various neurological conditions that athletes from all different sports possess. We are going to go into the concussion protocol. We're going to talk about what a concussion is. What's the difference between a CTE and a concussion? You see, concussion is the most recognized example of a sports-related injury. However, Athletes also experience injuries to the spine, the spinal cord, peripheral nerves, and the neuromuscular system, and rarely traumatic brain injuries of greater severity. So what Stephanie outlines is this. This is something that really caught my attention. She said in the interview, baseline testing is a way to evaluate athletes prior to having a concussion or after fully recovering from a concussion where the testing can be repeated if an acute concussion is suspected and also to assist the clinician to determine when it is safe for them to return to play. You will find that in this episode that what we're doing now in the NFL and in also in, in Major League Soccer and FIFA and the European leagues is very negligible. We're not taking enough time to assess a concussion. We're not taking enough time to see what the severity of the hit is. We're giving athletes three minutes, under three minutes, to uh, see two fingers in front of their eyes and get back onto the field and play. And, you know, adrenaline may be pushing them forward. They may go on and play, and this is having detrimental effects. So please tune in. This is a really great episode, and let me know how you like it. Welcome to the Neuro Experience Podcast, where you will learn the science of human performance and optimization. Before we move into the episode, I'd love to thank our three sponsors. With great content comes fantastic sponsors. Our first sponsor is Eight Sleep. Eight Sleep is a sleep fitness technology company that makes the absolute best mattress covers and mattresses to increase the quality of your sleep. I sleep on an Eight Sleep Pod Pro cover. So instead of purchasing the mattress, I've bought the cover with the technology. The Eight Sleep Tech allows you to automate and control the temperature of your bed as you sleep through the night. 
Sleeping on this bed has changed the way I sleep and the way that I view sleep as a whole, because being able to control my core body temperature while I sleep has been an absolute game changer. So if you want to increase your sleep performance like I am, and you want the mattress or the pod pro cover, you can get $150 off using code neuro at checkout. All the links are below. Just go to eightsleep.com slash neuro to find out more. And if you want to purchase one of these, use code neuro at checkout. My second sponsor today is Somavedic. I am really digging deep in the electromagnetic frequencies space, EMFs. You've probably heard about them. Devices such as cell phones, Wi-Fi routers, computers, and other Bluetooth devices emit EMFs. Now, these devices emit radiation, and that radiation impacts our health. So in order to mitigate this, I've been using the Somavedic device. I plug it into my home office. I also have one that I plug into my bedroom right next to my bed, and it helps me mitigate the effects of EMFs and helps from a cellular structural perspective. If you want to find out more about this, or you want to purchase an EMF device for your home office, you can get 10% off using code NEURO at checkout. Because what do I always say about EMFs? I say that the most dangerous pollution affecting you is the invisible sea of EMFs your body swims in daily. Our third sponsor of today's episode is Muse, the brain sensing headband. So this is a bit of a disclaimer. Probably around three months ago, my workload got extremely heavy. And that meant that I had very, very busy days. And when I have extremely busy days and I'm working on different time zones, I'm working in New York, LA, and also in Australia, it means that my mind is going 24 hours a day. Busy minds during the day means busy nines at night. And if you cannot settle your mind down, you're going to have a restless sleep. So I started to invest in non-pharmacological ways to really bring system and get me into a rest, a, a, a restorative sleep. So I started using real-time biofeedback on my brain and that was via the Muse headband. And it's absolutely been a game changer for me. So the way that I use Muse is I put it on my head when I'm about to go to sleep and I go onto the app and I select one of their sleep journeys. Uh, the, the tech is absolutely phenomenal. And what it does is the tech responds to your brain. So the headband responds to your brain activity and it adjusts the audio content to cue your brain to fall asleep. And if you are restless during the night, if you wake up in the middle of the night, the technology from the headband is used automatically to guide you back to sleep again. So this is all done via EEG technology. It's incredibly smart. So if you want to monitor your brainwave activity so you can get better sleep and get rid of the busy mind, then you can get 10% off using code NEURO at checkout. Just head to choosemuse.com to receive 10% off the newest generation of Muse S. Dr. Stephanie, thank you so much for being part of the Neuro Experience podcast. I'm absolutely excited to have you on board because you are one of very few in the US or in, in the world who is board certified as a sports neurologist. So 
I'm just going to hand the mic over to you. And why don't you start by telling us a bit about your background and what sports neurology is? Sure. Yeah. So, um, Basically, uh, my background is um, I'm from Connecticut originally. I went to St. George's University for medical school. Um, my father's a neurologist, so I had a neuro influence uh, from an early age um, and, you know, really fell in love with neurology during medical school. Um, I did a neurology residency for four years at the University of Connecticut, um, and I then did a one-year sports neurology fellowship um, at the Kutcher Clinic for sports neurology um, with Dr. Jeffrey Kutcher. And, um, so now I've come back to Connecticut and I'm the associate, uh, director of the Hartford healthcare, uh, sports neurology program. And, um, really, you know, what a sports neurologist does is treat neurologic conditions in athletes, um, whether it's either caused by their sport, such as a concussion or post-concussion syndrome, um, or, you know, things that occur really in the general population, like migraines, epilepsy, et cetera, uh, that are, you know, neurologic conditions. And in the context of a sport, you know, really need to be managed, uh, specially, uh, because, you know, they're under different, uh, you know, uh, climates and different travel schedules and, you know, dehydration and extreme temperatures and, and sleep deprivation. And, you know, the brain doesn't love those, (laughs) those types of things. So, um, in order for them to perform highly, you know, those things need to be kept in mind and, and they're, they should be managed, uh, you know, with that in mind. So that's, that's really what the subspecialty of sports neurology is. Oh, that's really exciting. And I think because first and foremost, we, whenever we think of sports, you know, we think of, you know, sports medicine, we think of sports medicine specialists. Now, when I look at the NFL, for example, 15 teams, and I think, don't quote me on the numbers, but there's around five physicians per team and not many, if not, I don't know if there is one um, board certified neurologists on deck. They're all either sports medicine physicians or they are just general practitioners. So this, this new field that's emerged, like you said, it's just new. And I think, do you, did, did it emerge because we didn't have somebody who was really focusing on quote unquote, the athlete's brain? We had sports medicine physicians and then you know, there's orthopedic surgeons and then there was general practitioners. What is, I would say, the biggest difference between this subspecialty and neurology or this subspecialty and sports medicine? Right, exactly. I do think that that contributed to the the creation of this field where, again, Jeffrey Kutcher, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Kutcher was one of the really founding people um, and started the first fellowship at the University of Michigan in about 2012. So, um, so really, I do think it was that it kind of revealed itself that there's a need for a brain doctor uh, to really be involved in keeping these sports safe uh, for athletes, you know, uh, particularly with, you know, like you mentioned, the NFL, the NHL, you know, high velocity uh, types of injuries and combat sports, of course, with boxing and mixed martial arts. And and as that has all evolved, um, you know, it really has lent itself, I think, to to needing that that brain specialist on hand. 
Um, and you know, like you mentioned, orthopedic sports, you know, medicine physicians and primary care sports medicine physicians have been involved, you know, for a long time with sports. And, you know, certainly we, like you said, think of orthopedic injuries and, you know, the brain injury part is, is what I tell patients is really the invisible injury. You know, it's something that you can't see on a scan typically, you know, it's not something that you can really put your finger on, but it, it really, you know, causes a lot of havoc for patients. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I think it's sort of developed that way, you know, from, from just learning more about the brain and learning more about head injury and head trauma. Um, and just the need for a specialist has arisen. Yeah. I think, um, you know, especially after Will Smith produced that that show um, or that movie concussion, we all started to become aware of what a concussion is. So let's move into that field because I know there's a lot of um, the nomenclature around that is quite misunderstood when it comes to Mm -hmm. a general population, as opposed to from a physician perspective. And I distinctly heard you say in a, a previous interview that not all head injuries are concussions. So Let's start by first classifying, I guess, what a concussion is and the difference between a concussion, a CTE, and just a a head trauma. Sure, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's really become, you know, sometimes over-recognized now, um, you know, maybe as a result of the movie, you know, but, um, you know, it, it's recognized to now the other extreme. Um, so, so it's true that not every hit to the head is a concussion. A true, the definition of a concussion really is any uh, biomechanical force imparted to the brain, which has caused a functional uh, disturbance rather than a structural injury. Um, or a gross structural injury. And uh, it's a transient injury. You know, it really does resolve uh, the the mild TBI, the concussion um, type of head injury resolves, you know, within about a two-week period. Um, so that's really the definition I use for concussion. Of, of course, there are many uh, variations out there. Um, but like you said, you know, it, it's true that not every hit to the head is a concussion. Um, and when I say that, I mean, you know, that you can stand up into a shelf, you can stand up into a counter, but that doesn't mean your brain is shifting, you know, within the the fluid of the, of the skull, you know? Um, and, but it's, it's hard for a lot of practitioners and a lot of providers to tell the difference, you know, but we really have to think critically about the mechanism of the injury and, and watching video back, you know, those things really, really matter, um, in terms of when you're talking about was it or wasn't it a concussion, um, as well as putting it together with their symptoms and, and their symptom course over time. Um, but, but, you know, the other thing is if it's not concussion, then what is it? And certainly traumatic headache, traumatic migraine, cervical neck strain, uh, you know, those can also mimic concussion and they're very commonly, they do that as well as, you know, dehydration and, you know, hyperthermia, things like that can also all mimic concussion. So it has to be thought of, not just, oh, you got hit in the head, it must be a concussion. You know, it can't be that simple. And it, and it isn't. Exactly. And do you think that we've got a misleading um, protocol, if you will? I, know, I don't know if you've looked at the um, concussion protocol, um, 2020 concussion protocol, and what your thoughts are on those. But do you think that there is a few slips out there that, that need fixing? I didn't look specifically at it actually uh, for the updated stuff, but um, you know, a, a typical concussion protocol and my mentor Jeffrey Kutcher would be um, 
uh, horrified for me to use the word protocol. We hate that word protocol, but it really is a, it's a process, you know, <laughs> um, because it's not like we can just plug somebody into a cookie cutter, like you say, protocol and that it's all going to turn out fine. You know, this is an individualized injury. It requires an individualized approach, um, in terms of recovery and, and tailoring a program for that, that athlete, that sport, that, that brain, um, you know, knowing their history of, of anxiety or history of migraines or history of, you know, you name it, those all really have to play a role. Um, so, but, you know, really a, a typical return to play, uh, product protocol really includes, um, you know, that cardio phase, then it should include an, an agility phase where you're moving in space more, um, you know, adding weightlifting, things like that, making it more complicated of, of um, an exercise, um, as well as challenging the brain in terms of motion and eye tracking and visual things. Um, and then getting back to more sports specific non-contact drills and then really getting them into their more contact uh, practice before clearing them. So the real pro, you know, protocol or progression should look something like that, no matter what sport we're talking about. Yeah. Are you more so along the lines of preventative um, medicine? Like how can we, if you were to be hired, um, you know, by an NFL team, for example, would you be more so inclined to be looking at the preventative measures or let's look at wait for the injury to occur and then we'll see what we can do then? Well, I like to combine both. I have a master's in public health, so that's where, you know, concussion for me really fits in with a a public health uh, problem. And so there's a lot of research in in prevention, um, although it's obviously hard, hard to do, but, but I do feel that, you know, the literature that's come out on neck strengthening, for example, um, from the university of Michigan and anticipatory neck muscle activation, you know, when you're expecting something, you can activate the neck and then less, uh, force gets referred and, and imparted to the brain. So, so that's been interesting, um, from, from the physical medicine aspect, um, but also things that I like to, to work on are, you know, education, rule changes, you know, and really decreasing unnecessary exposure to contact uh through maybe more non-contact practices, especially at the high school level and, and, you know, that pre-professional sort of time where, you know, athletes should be, um, you know, doing multiple sports and not really sport, um, specialization, they call that where you kind of just focus on one sport, you know, it's really good to have a well-rounded athlete. Um, and those things do, uh, present in, in decreased head injuries when, when you look at those, you know, uh, types of, of interventions. Mm. Normally when we look at, um, we, we think of a sports neurologist or head injury per se, we're always thinking of concussion. Therefore, we're always thinking of the NFL. Is mm-hmm. there, what are the, um, let's get away from NFL and let's look at the sport of like European soccer, for example. Mm-hmm. Is there a need Obviously, there, obviously, everybody, I believe everybody needs a, a sports neurologist. However, mm-hmm. what are some other aspects of sports neurology that can be embedded to sports like soccer? Um, I know with hockey that there are, I think I read the stats, that there are actually more concussions happening in the um, NHL than what there is in the NFL. But So I want to get away from hockey and let's look at soccer, for example, mm-hmm. or even golf. Right. 
Well, definitely soccer um, and European soccer is something I've been following pretty closely because I think we have just so much work to do there. Um, you know, especially like I'm mentioning rule changes and, and trying to prevent head injuries and making the sport, you know, a little more flexible in terms of, you know, if somebody needs to be evaluated, giving them the athlete that time to come out and that time to be evaluated immediately rather than, you know, they have to wait for their sort of substitution and then all the limitations on substitutions, you know, and all of that. So, um, from a prevention standpoint, it's kind of a setup to, to really not be, um, able to prevent the injuries, you know, or really give the athlete, um, the, the time for, for them to be evaluated and, and, you know, give them a chance of, of a, you know, an improved or quicker recovery, even if we can have the early recognition, of course. So soccer, European soccer is, is something that, you know, we always hear of, of, you know, every year of, uh, situations where athletes were, uh, appeared concussed, but they had to stay in and, you know, it makes mm. me cringe. Um, and so, but, you know, in terms of, of, of concussions in that sport, I do feel that that's where we do need to, to really focus, um, hopefully in the near future on bringing more, um, education to it. Yeah. Is there a, um, within the, I would say the curriculum of sports neurology, is there a section in there that focuses on things like enhancing, um, visual acuity, information processing, memory function? Is there, is there a place there or is that more so more so neurosciences? Yes, th that's always an aspect. Actually, um, I'm glad you mentioned the the visual piece because you know in 2014, what's called the vestibular oculomotor screening test uh, was developed and uh, by the group at UPMC, and um, you know that has been a, a very well studied uh, examination tool and assessment tool, which I use acutely on the sidelines, you know, and um, uh, really in, in helping determine, you know, was there or wasn't there a concussion and also tracking through their um, progression and, you know, through, through to recovery, um, you know, it really utilizes oh. otic eye movements, um, uh, smooth pursuits, uh, for extraocular muscles, um, and the vestibular ocular reflex. Um, and what we've found is, you know, that those are very subtle things that are not typically checked by non-head injury specialists, let's say. Um, so, you know, that, that is something that can go under the radar and, uh, perpetuate headaches, perpetuate, you know, delay recovery, prolong recovery. Um, maybe they require physical therapy for those issues actually, and it wasn't addressed. So then the person may go on to have post-concussion syndrome, for example. So, so visual stuff has really proved to be very important. And I, I feel, you know, maybe I'm partial as a neurologist, but I do feel that, you know, a few other specialties, particularly in sports medicine, understand the eye movements and the eye tracks as well as a neurologist does. Uh, I absolutely love this area. And maybe in the future, there'll be another subspecialty that will be sports neuro-ophthalmology, because I think um, the eyes and this and vision plays such a huge role in not just the health of the brain, but also how an athlete gets better 
on game day mm-hmm. performance and at training. But I wanted to um, just delve a bit deeper into the vestibular ocular reflex. Are you able to talk a bit more about that? And what I'll do at the end of this episode is I'll actually link the, um, you mentioned the the test, the vestibular ocular reflex test that was um, created in 2014 um, at the bottom of these show notes. But can we just delve into that and talk about what that is and kind of how the how the eyes um, connect to the brain? Because from what I know, the eyes or is it, uh, the retina are two pieces of the brain that were like r- literally pushed out during neural development. So I think that connection is is extremely important to understand. Absolutely. So uh, the vestibular oculomotor screening test, or the, we call it the VOMS, V-O-M-S test, um, really looks at, um, you know, those kind of five main areas, five main modalities of smooth pursuits, convergence, um, vertical and horizontal saccades, and uh, the vestibular ocular reflex in horizontal and vertical plane, as well as the final one is a called the visual motion sensitivity um, portion. And so it really looks at all different types of eye movements that we're able to do as you know, uh, human beings. And it's unique to human beings, actually. If you think about history and development of the brain, you know, other animals, other creatures, other mammals are, they have what's called more saccadic eye movements where they can kind of dart from one object and look to the other. Whereas we're able to actually have smooth eye movements where we're able to track something like across a screen or across our view. Um, and other, other, you know, creatures are not able to do that. So, um, so in that way, you know, we're very unique, but now what, what we've really found in terms of concussion with these, um, is that, you know, if, if somebody is doing these, these tests, these modalities and it's producing headache or it's producing dizziness or nausea, um, then that's abnormal. And, uh, you know, that should, that should not be the case. Um, and what's also interesting about this test is that, you know, for, um, some of the, the, uh, portions of it, you have to have a really good, um, and, and normal range of motion of your neck. So, and with head injury, certainly the neck is, is commonly involved, and so if you have a decreased range of motion in the neck, you're not able to move your head, you know, side to side, that input to the brain, which is, you know, a part of proprioception or, you know, the brain's ability to know where you are in space, where your body parts are, are in space is distorted. And that is what produces a lot of dizziness in head injury um, because of this neck turning eyes yoked to that, you know, knowing what to do. And that mechanism is off. Now these are rehabable things, which is you know great. That's the good news. Um, but they're very sensitive. We're finding with with identifying concussion, you know, and not by itself. Of course, you have to take the history and the examination as a whole. But this portion of it has really been reproducible to and reliable in, in determining concussed athletes versus not. Especially if you have a baseline, you know, that's really key. Mm. And I think it opens up the door for a lot of, like you said, re- rehab programs. You said it's very rehabable because mm-hmm. we're now being exposed to a lot more 
training data and protocols. I know that you don't like that word, but um, training programs, <laughs> if you will, yes, that yes, revolve yes, around yes. visual acuity. And there's, um, you know, I know that reaction training is this big thing that people are, are working on now, whether it's even just getting a tennis ball and throwing it to the wall, or now we're seeing other inventions like um, lights flashing and you have to hit the lights at a certain time or number mm-hmm. games. All this is obviously enhancing neural function. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Sure. It's, uh, they're complicated tasks, you know, um, having to focus on it, having to, you know, follow the rules of, of the task, um, you know, and having that reaction time. Um, you know, there's lots of research on reaction time um, in concussion as, as one thing that's affected. Um, but certainly, you know, one thing I do that's, that's similar to, to that is, um, you know, I, I also learned this in, in my fellowship training is, uh, you know, we put people through ping pong, you know, as a way of with visual eye tracking, you have to follow the ball. And then, you know, we kind of put them on an uneven surface so that they have to balance at the same time. We give them different tasks, like, you know, white balls go to the left, uh, the orange balls go to the right, you know, and they're, they're trying to, you know, manage these, these other things. Then we're playing a video behind them. You know, all of this, um, is really, uh, complicated and, and, you know, we can add these cognitive tasks, like you're, you're saying, and, and that also, you know, increases the complexity of the environment, which, you know, in sports, you know, similar to like hockey, for example, where everything is in motion, you're in motion, the puck is in motion. You have to, you know, uh, be able to track everything, you know, and know where you are in space and under bright lights and the sounds and, and everything going on. Um, you know, those athletes in particular, um, are, are pretty fond of, of ping pong. Yeah. I, I, I think when we, I read this study, I, I'm not into, um, race car driving or, or a formula one. However, when it comes to how, you know, when it comes to looking at the neuroscience of, of the driver and, and their, all of these components we just spoke about, I think it's really interesting. And I think the truly greatest drivers have got to have like unbelievable an unbelievable level of trunk or proprioception and sensory awareness that allows them to feel what the car is doing and how you can kind of like, cause I believe their, their helmets are, weigh like six or seven kilos. So they not only have to have a strong Mm -hmm. neck, but they've got to focus on so much. They're talking through the microphone. They're trying to, Mm. uh, I don't know, keep themselves alive, which is what I find. But that must be another sport that is very under-recognized when it comes to um, neurology. We only, uh, quote me if I, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but when we think of neurology, we really just think of concussions and you're Mm -hmm. here advocating for more than just concussions. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and like you said, there's, you know, tons of sports that really, you know, even baseball has been studied as, you know, one of the more neurologically complex sports because of the hand-eye coordination, you know, you have to hit this ball and, uh, you know, you have to have the strength and you have to have the timing and you have to have the visual, like you're saying, the visual acuity, you have to be able to read the pitch, you know, and, and mm. think critically about it in a very short period of time, you know, a split second. Um, and that's one that in recovery from concussion in particular is, uh, challenging. Um, you know, the concussion recovery time itself is, you know, about the same, but their recovery of their, 
um, batting average has been shown to be delayed. Um, so, so even that part does take, you know, maybe a period of six weeks or so after to really recover, um, you know, once they are cleared back to their sports. So, um, so that's just another, you know, example of a sport that, that is neurologically complex. After, after just, you know, listening to you for the last 30 minutes, it, it strikes me that, does it frustrate you knowing that teams don't have a, an onboard sports neurologist or even because we're so early then even just a neurologist on board? I mean, I, I do like they? yourself feel that, you know, I, well, that's true. Some sports do, but very few, um, you know, in football, even in the last few years is when they've really made that rule to have a, you know, neurotrauma specialist, which are, I think, Primarily, they're usually neurosurgeons, but there are uh, several neurologists that are involved with with the NFL teams, but um, very few sports. I mean, I don't know of any hockey um, teams that require or have a neurologist um, at the at you know their games. Um, you know, so it's frustrating in the sense that you know it's. I'd like to see the athlete very early. You know, sometimes I find that I'm you know, maybe a second opinion or a third opinion or, or, you know, um, you know, but I think even early on, the sooner that they see a head injury specialist, the better off any, anybody will be, you know, not just athletes, but I also treat, you know, the, the weekend warrior who, you know, was in a car accident or, you know, you name it, you know, a work-related injury and those patients, you know, they, they also, you know, have, have challenges to get back to their day-to-day high functioning, whether it's a physical job or, you know, maybe they're a CEO and have to perform highly at that, you know? So, um, so sports neurology is, is even more broad than you'd think in terms of the population that we see. And, you know, the brain doesn't know what hit it, you know, it doesn't know the difference between a sports related injury versus a car accident or something else. Um, you know, so, but they each have their own challenges, um, in terms of, recovery. Just on that, I was reading a book not so long ago and it said something similar to what you just said. It said the brain doesn't know the difference between a physical trauma, like if you've been hit by a car or the, the trauma of going through a, the loss of a family member. Is that right? I could see why that would be. I mean, certainly there's from a physical head trauma, you know, if there's shearing forces, you know, stretching injuries on the axons, things like that would be obviously more physical than, um, than, you know, emotional, but there are definitely parts of a head trauma that can certainly mimic, uh, you know, and be related to just, just by, you know, um, you know, the other analogy I use is even, if, you know, an athletes who are wired to be active, right. And once you rest them, uh, even without a head injury, you're going to cause sleep problems and mood problems and, you know, all these other things. Mm-hmm. So adding a head injury on top of that, you know, doesn't help. So I, I could see how that would be, you know, if you change your, your routine, um, even with just the loss or grief or, you know, some, uh, emotional trauma that's happened or, you know, uh, stress of some sort, uh, those things are, you know, really important for any brain. The brain loves a routine, you know, if mm-hmm. it can keep its sleep, keep its hydration, you know, know when it's getting its regular meals, know when it's, you know, um, going to go to bed and wake up and what kind of Don't upset it'll it. have. Yeah. Don't upset yeah, it is exactly. what you're saying. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, do you sleep on, do you sleep on time every night? Typically. Yes. Yeah, actually <laughs> I do. I try to, you know, I try to take my own advice. Yeah. <laughs> to patients. Yeah. Um, 
So what's your thoughts on cold shock protein in the recovery aspect of a head injury? I've read, um, I've read a lot of um, studies that are being done, recent preclinical and clinical data that strongly suggests a destructive synergism between brain temperature elevation and uh, traumatic brain injury. So um, I think there's been, even in Australia, there's, um, there's one of the universities there, I think it's Macquarie University, they're doing a study on the cooling effect of when a rugby league player takes a blow to the head of whatever level, if they can, I think it's like within the first 20 minutes, like get like start cooling down um, the system. And I think they, they've they gotten this um, this neck cooling device. I think that's what, what what's going on down there. And they're just trying to see if that um, helps the injury in any way. Yeah, that's interesting. It's been definitely studied in, um, you know, head injuries and in, in other, you know, like severe TBI for sure. Um, I'm I would think it's because like you're saying, you know, the change in cerebral blood flow, the, you know, the increased heat, um, you know, especially if it's from a sports related injury, you know, they're, they're running around there, you know, the, whatever it is exerting themselves. Um, so that changes the brain metabolism and then, you know, certainly cooling, uh, quickly and getting, uh, you know, the temperature down to the brain and to the blood supply that that would, you know, prevent inflammation, you know, is I think the, the goal of it. And, um, you know, there's been lots of research on that, you know, even in, in hypoxic, you know, injuries or, you know, where, where there's blood flow and oxygen cut off to the brain from, you know, loss of consciousness, cardiac arrest, things like that, you know, hypothermia protocols have been, you know, well-established in, in those settings. But in TBI, it hasn't, I don't think, come to real fruition that, you know, you should automatically do it. But I, I know of much research that's been done definitely at the severe TBI level um, about it. And theoretically, you know, it makes a lot of sense. So, mm-hmm. um, but I just think in, in for whatever reason, in, in, the, you know, trials that have been done and things that I don't think it's come out to be more beneficial than not. And certainly, you know, you don't want to have extreme temperature changes, you know, some, some of that's not good for some, some brains, you know, every Mm -hmm. brain is a bit different, but, um, but so I don't think there's been much conclusive, uh, evidence of that, but theoretically it, it does make a lot of sense. Yes. Yeah, I think there's still a fine line because I've read a lot of research to suggest that um, cryotherapy, um, those cryotherapy chambers are actually not effective unless you're doing it, you know, I think because now if you go into a chamber, I think it's like limited to two and a half minutes or three minutes, but the research suggests that you need to be doing this at least six or seven days a week to really get the effects. However, there has been a lot of research to support the idea of cold baths, like getting into an ice bath at I don't know what Fahrenheit, maybe 30 degrees, maybe, I don't know. I'm Mm. still on Australian um, (laughs) degrees, but um, that has more of an effect than what a cryotherapy chamber does. So I think it's still, like you Mm -hmm. said, it's, it's under researched. Right. Right. No, I definitely agree, but interesting information though. Um, All right. I want to um, talk about neuroimaging. So what's been your, Uh, what's been your experience when it comes to it? We don't even have to go into trauma. Mm -hmm. We can talk about anything. Let's talk Mm -hmm. about that. 
the first and foremost, um, what an EEG is and how that differs from an fMRI and when you would mm-hmm. use each. Sure. So uh, EEG is really when um, the brain, they hook, they hook up different uh, electrodes and map out uh, the brain on the surface electrodes of the scalp um, and are able to look at brainwave activity by um, looking at the uh, electrical activity that's occurring, you know, under each of those surface electrodes. Um, it's, you know, very well established, uh, you know, in seizures. Um, and there's been a lot of studies and even um, devices used really looking at things like quantitative EEG and mm. biomarkers in EEG that may be um, indicative of um, concussion um, and even things like depression and things like ADHD and, and, you know, things like that. So, um, so that's been a very interesting, um, part of research coming out on head injury, um, and in, in sports neurology. Um, and then the, uh, functional MRI is, you know, MRI imaging, um, technology, but, in a person who, you know, they're able to ask them to do different tasks. And so it's kind of an active, uh, process. It's like, it's functional in the sense that the person's not just laying there and they're taking their picture, like on a typical MRI, they're giving them things to do or something to even think about, you know, think about this, this thing happening and which areas and, and structures in the brain are, you know, active or more active at those you know, with, with those tasks. Um, and so there's a lot of centers, um, in the U S that, um, you know, really have people come and they do these, um, images. Um, but I find that the research for functional MRI has not, has been somewhat disappointing in the sense that it's not been helpful for patients. You know, I don't, I don't find that, it makes a big difference on their, uh, their treatment course. Um, and that would be really the reason to do those tests is to, if it would change your management, you know? So, um, so I, I, I've been a little disappointed by the functional MRI, um, research in that way, but, um, but quantitative EEG and, and EEG, uh, biomarker mapping, um, you know, has shown to be helpful. Um, in my experience, I have done some work with that. Um, but, you know, there's still work to be done. You know, there's no perfect imaging for concussion. There just isn't. Nothing replaces the clinical, you know, neurologic exam um, and, and history of, of the situation. Mm. It's interesting. I mean, do you think that more so psychiatry would be using the fMRIs? Yes, I do. You know, there's a lot of research for like PTSD, for example, yeah. and, and its role in giving that sort of visual feedback to the patient, um, you know, can actually help them psychologically, you know, kind of overcome some things. But, um, like I said, I just don't find that it's actually made a difference in outcomes with concussion. I really love that you said, um, you're, you're advocating for quantitative EEG because that's just, you know, this realm of, um, brain mapping and neurofeedback and biofeedback. I know that they're doing that to help a lot of people with anxiety, um, problems, PTSD, but it, they can, you can, it can be used in an athletic sense, if you will. Um, but, 
I've actually looked at EEG scans um, and, you know, NQ EEGs, which have come up with biomarkers for um, the three things that I said earlier, which is information processing, memory function, and visual acuity. And then I think, well, and we were using that primarily for um, to detect early onset Alzheimer's disease. But I, I think to myself, well, everybody needs help in these three areas. Why isn't everybody going out and doing a QEEG? Why isn't if it's so invasive, if it's just so easily accessible, because mm. we don't need to go into a hospital setting now to do an EEG. You can go into a, a clinic. So if they're so accessible, why isn't everybody going and getting their head scanned? That's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, for the, the it's really, I think, comes down to who's interpreting the EEG, you know, and I don't think that that's as widespread as the availability of the technology, mm-hmm. um, you know, in terms of which uh, neurologists or, you know, uh, interpreters are really, yeah, neurophysiologists yeah. are able to um, interpret it for that purpose. You know, like I said, it's much more common mm-hmm. that they would be looking for seizures or be looking for, you know, some of these other things. But it is a unique sort of, like you said, looking at the biomarker looking at, you know, giving them different tasks, you know, that part really requires some further training than, than what you'd find at a, at a, you know, run of the mill EG sort of clinic. Yeah. So what's the, what does the future look like for you? I know you're a huge advocate of this, um, of this subspecialty. I know that you've probably loved sports and you love neurology. Where do you see this field going and are you going to be involved in any research in the future? Yeah, the future is very wide open. I think again, being <laughs> such an such an early field, um, you know, and it's it's early stages of really revealing itself and and having people trained in this field. And I'm very happy to announce that actually Hartford Healthcare, where uh, I'm the associate director of sports neurology, is uh, starting a fellowship in sports neurology starting for July, 2022. So I'm happy to be a part of, uh, training the future of sports neurology. And that part is very important to me and and education and academics. And certainly research is a big piece of that as well. Um, and there's, you know, some research, you know, even with COVID, you know, being able to, um, still work ringside at boxing and MMA as I, as I have been, um, and, you know, looking at COVID in terms of sports and, and, you know, looking at those, um, you know, positivity rates in different types of sports bubbles and how effective they are, you know, even that's something that we're doing now. Um, so, uh, you know, with whatever presents itself in the times, you know, and where, where the world is going, um, you know, sports neurology will be able to adapt and be able to, um, you know, continue, you know, even, even without sports or with sports, but certainly physical activity has proven itself in neurology and in, in all areas, cardiology, you know, you name it, um, to be a mainstay of, of really non-pharmacologic treatment. So, um, that's where I think sports neurology is really going. Mm. Well, look, I'm so fascinated and so excited to watch your progress. And thank you for everything that you've provided us with today in the podcast. Where can we find out more about you? Sure. I'm on Twitter. Uh, My Twitter handle is um, at S-A-L-E-S-S-I-L-A-R-O-S-A. And that's S-L-S-E-L-A-R-O-S-A. Um, on Twitter and then um, certainly um, the Hartford Healthcare.org website 
um, is uh, another area for my practice and uh, for what we're doing through Hartford Healthcare. That's amazing. I'm going to link everything that you've been speaking about. And I just want to thank you so much for being part of the Neuro Experience podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun.